Another story that we continue to update and keep an eye on in this is the uh, the situation in Ukraine. Uh, we're now getting the final death toll from a weekend Russian missile strike on an apartment building in southeastern Ukraine. It's now 45, uh, the deadliest attack on civilians since the spring. Five children among those who died. Um, is it a change in a tactic by the Russian military? We know they've targeted civilians before. Um this conflict, we're now almost a year into it. It started in late February of last year, and the thinking at the time was it would be short and Russia would win quite easily. It hasn't happened that way, and I think that's really put them in a spot the longer it goes. But a great piece um, written just this week, as a matter of fact. Uh, you can find it at theconversation.com by our next guest, James Horncastle, an assistant professor and uh, Edward and Emily McWinnie professor in international relations at Simon Fraser University. Uh, James, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate your time today. Oh, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. I mean, your piece, and I think it's, 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 it hits the nail right on the head in terms of the pressure is continuing to mount on Russia and on Vladimir Putin to try and change the trajectory here because it's just gone horribly for almost a year now, right? Yeah. As you mentioned, he, uh, most analysts uh, kind of expected this to be a relatively rapid campaign, especially from the Russian side. They probably thought that was going to end up being a couple of weeks. It certainly did not turn into that. We had indications almost from the outset that it was going to be a protracted conflict. And we're starting to see pressure build upon kind of Putin and the Russian kind of political establishment to rapidly end the conflict. We even had Putin actually declare that it was a war uh, relatively recently, which is a change of kind of rhetoric that he's starting to build up because previously it was always a special military operation. But the fact that he's declaring it a war now indicates kind of trying to prepare the Russian population that this is not going to be something that's going to be quick, but something that they may have to end up being in for longer than they initially planned. And at all the while, uh, so you've got the fact that this did not go according to plan, and it's been somewhat embarrassing, the uh, ineffectiveness of the Russian military. They've also lost tens of thousands of fo- fighters in this conflict, too. Yeah, over 100,000 at least were uh, figuring based off most of the estimates. Uh, both sides have been relatively cautious in providing actual casualty numbers just as a matter of trying to kind of maintain morale because nobody wants to mention if they're suffering severe casualties. But most objective ob- observations put it over 100,000. And in particular, it was a major problem for the Russian army because these were individuals who were professionals who have been in the army for a relatively long time. And the way that the Russian army works is these were the individuals who were supposed to provide kind of the core for the Russian military to train up the conscripts that they're bringing in. So not only did they lose an excessive number of soldiers, but these were the soldiers who were supposed to really provide the core. Right. Now when they're bringing in, like with the conscription of 300,000, they don't have this kind of solid base with which to kind of continue the standard operations that they would like to perform. And, you know, I think at the at heart of all this and at the heart of your piece, too, is the fact that what's behind a lot of this is the incredible spirit of the people of Ukraine and, and, and you know, the morale and the we won't back down and we will fight on attitude that we've seen that I think surprised a lot of people. Um, it, it's It's simplistic to say that's winning the war, but that is a big part of it, isn't it, James? 
Oh, it's a massive factor uh, in terms of the Ukrainian ability to keep striking back and fighting because they are at a material disadvantage from just about every perspective. But their combat capabilities are exceeding expectations because they have such a high morale, especially when you contract with the low morale of the Russian army. I mean, most analysts get into the mistake of what we call kind of tank counting, where you end up saying, oh, this army has so many tanks, another army has right. so many tanks this in terms of equipment. But morale is a pivotal factor that often gets overlooked. And in this case, we're seeing that the Ukrainian army, because the Ukrainian morale, the civilian population is so high, it's transferring to the armed forces and providing them with kind of a resistance that's disproportionate to their actual military capabilities in terms of hardware. So Russia, of course, responding and trying to target morale. And, you know, we talked about off the top here the attack on the apartment building and uh, the dozens of people that died there. Civilian attacks, is that part of trying to weaken the morale of the Ukrainian people? I would say it's becoming an increased factor. We saw it almost from the outset of the war because there was the various massacres in the parts of Ukraine that were occupied by the Russian army. But now with their increasing ineffectiveness on the uh, battlefield, which isn't to say that they don't have capabilities, we're still seeing them fighting back, but they can't win the war in a rapid manner with their conventional forces. So now we're seeing efforts to kind of try to take away that advantage that the Ukrainian army has in morale by targeting the civilian population. Most of this involves targeting infrastructure, such as hitting the electrical grid, hitting their kind of uh, hospital, kind of symbols of basically the Ukrainian state's capability of supporting the population. But we're also seeing increasingly attacks against the civilian population directly, such as the missile strike. There's arguments to be made whether this was intentional, perhaps the missile misfired and hit the apartment building by mistake. But the sheer volume that Russia is projecting means that this is going to become increasingly commonplace, even if they're still primarily targeting kind of the infrastructure elements. Um, Is it working? And how do um, the Ukrainian... Uh, government, how do they try and make sure that it doesn't? I mean, what, what's the steps that need to make sure that the morale stays where it is? Um, so far, it hasn't uh, worked uh, in terms of Russia's plans to tend to demoralize Ukraine. There is kind of some discontent where people are getting frustrated, but at the same time, the people are recognizing who is to blame, which is Russia versus Ukraine, uh, and realize that if they end up giving in, this could be a much worse situation for them than any other elements. In terms of efforts that the Ukrainian state is trying to kind of keep up morale, first off, keep up the services as much as possible. They've had an incredible kind of engineering effort to kind of restore much of the services as much as possible. There's increased efforts to focus on anti-aircraft and anti-drone capabilities in terms of preventing these strikes directly against the civilian population. Uh, And also in terms of basically making sure that they can provide for the population within Ukraine itself. There's over 8 million registered refugees uh, throughout Europe, for example. And the Ukrainian state requested that individuals don't return so that they can use the limited resources that they have to support them. And once basically conditions improve, then they can return. In terms of what can be done in order to kind of keep up the morale, 
these efforts by the Ukrainian state are important, but it's also important for outside states to kind of keep up their support for Ukraine as much as possible, because if Ukraine starts to feel isolated, naturally the morale of the population is going to decline. But if they see that the outside world is doing what they can in order to support them, the morale will continue to remain high uh, for the foreseeable future. Well, that and that's the good news. That's the good news. Uh, James, thanks so much for being here. I really appreciate your time. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's great to talk to you here today. Yeah, we'll do this again soon. Thank you. That's James Horncastle, who is an assistant professor and Edward and Emily McWinney professor in international relations at Simon Fraser University. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. (laughs) And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.